Welcome to TalkCast, and for an impromptu Ask Me Anything episode. I was interviewed just yesterday by Iona Italia, who is the editor of Areo magazine, and the link to that magazine is in the description to this video. It was a great conversation. It took a lot of meandering turns, and unfortunately I didn't get to most of the questions that were asked of me on Twitter. And so I thought I'd make up for it by doing this particular episode. Areo magazine is all about progress and humanism and science and philosophy and is well worth your looking into and your support if you can. So again, link in the description for that. I should say I like these Ask Me Anything episodes. This is the third one that I've done. And I like them because they're very little effort on my part. I don't have to go preparing anything like with all my other episodes that are devoted to books and particular ideas and exploration of those ideas. I can just sit down and treat it kind of like an interview where people are asking me questions on Twitter and I just answer them off the top of my head. So no preparation and I guess very little editing unless I really stuff up along the way. So without further ado, let's get into the questions. And the first one is asked by Arjun Kamani, who is a prolific writer and tweeter, but particularly writer on Substack. He has a wonderful little magazine happening there, a blog kind of thing. Well worth checking out. Links in the description. He's just also started a podcast. And I've been interviewed by Arjun recently for his podcast. And Arjun asks, why are problems inevitable? Now, that's a great one. So often this is treated, this question, uh, or this statement rather, this claim, problems are inevitable, is kind of treated as almost axiomatic. And I guess in a sense it is, but all axioms have an explanation behind them somewhere. There's a reason for thinking them or reason for thinking that they are good starting points. You can have any old starting point that you like, but these ones are particularly good, this idea of problems being inevitable. Why are problems inevitable? Well, my answer would be because we exist. Human beings, people exist, and basically that's it. That's why problems are inevitable. We, human beings, create knowledge, and that knowledge is error-prone. And because of those errors, we can only survive by correcting them in the long run. Now, more broadly, you might say that... Uh, problems are inevitable because life exists, because life exists there are problems. And only, well, only people kind of have problem situations, really. Only people can have problems. So once you've got a universe with people in them, people in it, rather, then you've got problems in that universe because people encounter problems. So maybe the question is, why do people find problems inevitable? Okay, in a universe without people, there might not be problems. Although you might argue that other animals could encounter problems. Individuals of a species, I guess, have this instinct to survive. So perhaps that's a problem situation of a kind. Or perhaps maybe just the genes have a problem, the problem of how to get replicated. But uh, I kind of think that might be a step too far. Better to think of problems as conflict between ideas. And what has ideas? Again, people. Genes don't really have ideas. Butterflies, birds and badgers don't have ideas in my perspective on all of this stuff. They have instincts. Other animals have instincts, but that's different. Let's not get into that right now and just stick with why are problems inevitable. So problems are inevitable because of the existence of people and people have this special relationship with the universe. We are a perspective on 
the universe. Each of us have our own perspective on the universe, and in particular, a perspective on time. We know things change in this universe from our perspective, from the perspective that we occupy, we observe the change over time. Now, from a God's eye view, if you could get outside of the multiverse, if you could just, or if you just think in terms of the Everettian multiverse perspective, what happens, in a sense, in fact, whether or not you endorse the Everettian multiverse or not, what happens in, what happens, happens by virtue of the laws of physics mandating what goes on. Things are determined, but. That's kind of irrelevant to this particular issue because, again, we're worried about why problems should be inevitable. But there's no – what I'm saying there is there's no universal problem. It's not like from a God's eye perspective you look down and you go, ah, there are the problems. Things are just kind of happening. Or are they? Because people are making choices as well. So we don't fully know the connection between consciousness, creativity and determinism. I have my perspective on all of that. However, from – What we do know, our best explanation at the moment, is that we people in the universe are conscious and our conscious experience of the universe means that we are located. We're located at at a particular place at a particular time and change happens. The past does not resemble the future. And so we're constantly encountering the unknown, the stuff that we don't understand, which is problematic it can be a bad problem that might cause us suffering, that might cause us uh, a threat, a threat to our survival in some way. But just in general, it causes conflicts between our ideas. We observe something that doesn't fit with what we already know. And so the unknown is bringing with it problems. That's why problems are inevitable, because people are the entities that have problems. People are conscious beings located at the present moment. The present moment separates the past from the future, and the future is almost entirely unknown. The past is also unknown, and so it can be problematic as well. But the fact is, we're in this universe of unknowns. Time is the thing that distinguishes between states that have been known in the past and states that cannot possibly be known until we encounter them, bringing with them problems. And so... The universe is in a state of flux, and all of that together is why problems are inevitable. So I hope that answers Arjun's question. Uh, now, moving on, reading Jitten. Jitten's asked a question on Twitter as well. Jitten Terracola. There are differences between men and women. They have different propensities for doing things, right, Jitten? What explains this when we're all universal explainers, each capable of doing what any other person can do. Well, excuse me while I have a a little drink of my tea. Okay, yeah, this is... I I get a sense that people on Twitter now and again seem to imply that what I kind of put out there in terms of my perspectives on this would suggest that there shouldn't be differences between men and women. That once you go down this path of, well, all human beings are universal explainers, so we are fundamentally the same in that respect, why aren't we the same then? In particular, why are there these systematic differences between the genders? You know, weigh in on all of this stuff about gender, Brett, go on. All right, well, here's what I would say about it. The sensation of testosterone 
and testicles is different to the sensation of progesterone, estrogen and ovaries, among other things. So those physical things, the chemicals, the hormones, and the physical structures of the body do indeed serve as sources of problems, ideas, sensations. So it is unsurprising that we, males versus females, do develop some differences, different tendencies, different propensities. Now that's one thing. It can it certainly... The, the, the different hormones, the different physical structures of the body can, manifest, can manif manifest themselves as different behaviors, even as early as in utero and, and immediately after birth as well. All parents who have a daughter and a son can tell you the difference. They tend to act differently. And teachers can tell you this as well. Anyone who encounters, you know, lots of little boys and lots of little girls can tell you there is a difference between them in terms of their behavior that seems to come from their genetics. Now, I'm not saying it's determined by genetics. I'm saying that genetics has an influence on certain things, like certain hormones, certain chemicals, that then go on to provide different sensations, different feelings, different the ways of observing stuff in the world, colouring the observations in the world. Now, it's not to say that that, those, that, that, that colouring, so to speak, uh, can't be error-corrected so that people can converge on the same truth. It's not to say any of that. Of course, we can, and we're universal. We can come to understand the same truths and the same knowledge about the universe. That's what the universality is about. But... Early on, very early on in life, the mere presence of the different ways in which males and females develop means very early on, soon after their birth, they're treated by everyone around them, not just their parents, but by everyone else, slightly differently. And this has ongoing consequences for their behavior. And their behavior is determined by the ideas they take on, their memes. And so they end up developing systematically slightly different meme plexes, sets of ideas that control their behavior, determine their behavior. So, so little boys and little girls have different hormones, have different physical structures. These physical structures and these hormones s determine subtly slightly different behaviors, which go on to determine slightly different ways in which the adults and other children around them treat them and simply by virtue of the fact knowing that they are boys and girls. But even if they didn't know they were a boy or a girl, the boy and the girl, boy versus the girl, acts differently in the world and so are treated differently in the world and therefore go on to have uh, reinforced behaviour that is different in the world as well. And so you get this sort of ratcheting up effect of differences between the genders, differences between the sexes. I am deliberately conflating those two words. Now, they're both universal explainers, of course. But, okay, let's, let's imagine them. Let's imagine a, a thought experiment, okay? The, perhaps the first ever, or some, some early AGI that are created. Here's my thought experiment for you. We take this newly generated artificial general intelligence and we put them in identical robot bodies. Okay, you can imagine these robot bodies as sophisticated as you like, human-looking as you like, but outwardly perfectly identical robot bodies in some way, shape, or form. Now what we do is we're going to raise these. This would be an unethical um, um, experiment, by the way. But, but imagine you raise them in two different houses, two different, two separated homes, 
One is raised in a rather solid, dark, sharply edged place with large windows and no mirrors. The interior of that particular home is huge, but the outside yard is really small. And this is where the first AGI grows up, or at least spends perhaps one year of its early life in this particular environment. Now, the other is raised in a softer, filled with cushions and bright, but with curved surfaces everywhere instead of sharp edges, and small windows and lots of mirrors. The interior of this home is small, but outside, the yard is large. And this is where they spend their first year or so of development, from, let's say, conception through to when they take their first tentative steps outside into the world beyond. Now, both of these two AGI receive the same number of visitors and indeed the same visitors and have very, very similar interactions with the visitors that they have. Maybe they even uh, can watch the same television shows and so on. Does anyone think that those these systematic differences between the two will make no difference to their personalities whatsoever? Yeah, sure, they're both universal explainers, but they will necessarily, by dint of their starting points, their internal, physically limited starting points, so to speak, diverge in some ways. And those raised in the sharp-edged, dark, but outward-looking place with a small yard tend to systematically re- would tend to systematically resemble if you, let's say you repeated the experiment over time, you did this again and again and again with different cohorts of, of people, of artificial general intelligences, then you would expect the ones that are raised in that dark, sharp-edged place, but which is able to see outside into a rather small yard, to systematically resemble those ones that are raised in a similar environment just like that. And the ones, and they would be different to, in systematic ways, in similar ways, to the ones raised in the curved, surfaced, bright, but inward-looking place with lots of mirrors, but it has a larger yard. Now, how exactly will they differ? I don't know. I don't know. But I can predict they will behave differently over time because of the ways, what they're able to observe, the kind of conjectures that they will have about sharp versus curved surfaces, uh, small windows versus large windows, the absence or presence of mirrors, uh, big yards and small yards, dark versus bright internal lighting, that, all that sort of stuff is going to have some impact. Now, I'm using that merely as an analogy, an analogy to, well, what's it like to have testosterone for the first, well, <laughs> throughout your entire life, versus having a predominance of cycles of estrogen and progesterone throughout your entire life. What's the difference there? What does it do? It does something. It provides some input into one's mind. And, and all we need to do is to observe what happens out there in reality, that there are these differences between males and females. And I, I cannot say that it's due entirely, utterly entirely to just the way in which they're socialised. That's not the case, because we know as a matter of biology, there are physical differences between the sexes. And those physical differences not only cause social reactions from other people, but cause an internal subjective experience which is different between the sexes as well. A systematic difference that is similar between the sexes, between members of the same sex. Now, can 
Boys and girls learn to do exactly the opposite. Can a boy learn to behave like a girl? And can a girl learn to behave like a boy? And what is this behaving like a boy and behaving like a girl? Well, precisely what it is in different cultures. Different cultures have slightly different ways of boys and girls behaving. Modulo all of those differences. There are differences, right? There are differences. Every culture throughout history has been able to recognize that there are these differences between the sexes, not merely physically, but behaviorally. And as I keep using this word systematically, in other words, reliably you can tell the differences and list the features of the ways in which boys behave versus the ways in which girls behave. I know it might be politically incorrect, but people can do it. Children can do it. What are the typical characteristics of a boy? doesn't mean that all boys will have these characteristics. What are the typical characteristics of the girl? Not meaning that all girls will share these characteristics. And there will be a lot of overlap. Okay, Lots more people have written and commented on this stuff. Some people make entire careers on this sort of stuff, <laughs> talking about this sort of stuff. I don't find that hugely interesting, except where it comes to bear on this kind of thing, because where it crosses over to this concept of universal explainer is that, yes, in theory, a boy could learn to behave exactly like a girl, and a girl could learn to behave exactly like a boy. There is this capacity for us to do so. Now, it's not always easy, and some boys do tend to act do tend to have more feminine traits and some girls do have tend to have more masculine traits. Great, that's just more grist for the mill for the case I'm making that we are universal explainers. But just because we're universal explainers doesn't mean we should all be the same. In fact, precisely the opposite. It means that we should all be different. Okay, universal explainer means that you have a spectrum of different possibilities before you all of which you could take on, but you don't because you can't because you can only possibly take on a particular personality. Modulo the people who say they have multiple personalities and all that sort of stuff. Okay, that aside. The fact is we are universal explainers of a kind instantiated in biology, which provides us with certain sensations and certain tendencies, certain propensities, as we say. But... That is just to say we are biological organisms with these tendencies due to different physical structures that the sexes have, but we're not fundamentally biological organisms, which is where I disagree with evolutionary psychologists and so on. Fundamentally, we are minds, and there is not a feminine mind and a masculine mind. There's just minds. Minds are universal explainers. Individual members of the class of universal explainers can be grouped in different ways. They could be grouped as males and females, okay, but there will be differences. You won't be able to pick one person randomly and say, well, here is what one must do to qualify as being a male member of the species because of these features of the mind. That's not what we're saying here at all. A mind is a mind is a mind in terms of its capacity to create knowledge, to explain stuff, to take interests in things, to make choices out in the world and all of those features that make a mind a mind and different to what any other living system that hitherto we know about. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, with respect to this question, when we get artificial general intelligence, presumably it won't be based in biology. Maybe it will be. But assuming it's not, assuming it's programmed in a computer in some way, then it won't have this testosterone progesterone thing I'm saying. It presumably won't have testicles versus ovaries. Presumably it won't have a particular male type or female type body, but it will 
one would hope, have a body of some kind which will determine the kind of sensations that it tends to experience. And if you, manufacture isn't the right word here, but, but if artificial general intelligence tends to be created with a certain kind of body, you could imagine a situation where there are two different kinds of bodies that artificial general intelligences could be instantiated in, and those two different kinds of bodies would, over time, produce subtly different personalities or perhaps markedly different personalities between the two populations, even though there would be a whole lot of overlap there would still be these systematic differences over time. You could imagine giving an artificial intelligence wheels, couldn't you? Or you know, there's a kind of created with wheels and one created with legs. There would be systematic differences over time. The sensation of what it's like to um, roll is going to be different to the sensation of walking and running. Okay, that, that, Again, an analogy to the different sensation of having different parts of your anatomy if you're a boy versus a girl. Okay. That's a long answer on that particular question. Next question is asked by David Hearn. Now, I should mention David is on Twitter at David underscore Hearn, H-U-R-N. Well worth following, if only for his likes. <laughs> he, he tends to like all this really interesting science stuff. So I don't need to bother following all of these great science communicators and great scientists out there because David does it for me. <laughs> he tends to like these interesting tweets and uh, the, the output of all these great scientists and thinkers. And so I just look at David's likes now and again, and that's enough for me. And he also has some uh, great replies to people. He's one of the, 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 the most subtle and humorous replies to um, uh, to lots of intellectual stuff on Twitter as well. So follow David Hearn. And he asks, David asks, with the right knowledge, can we change the laws of physics slash reality? Or can we only get round them? <laughs> Hashtag optimism. Okay. So I've got a feeling knowing David from a distance, knowing da David from Twitter, this is a kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, question almost. He knows the answer. That we can't get around the laws of physics. We can't get around whatever the constraints are, the limitations that physics places upon us. Now, why is this? Well, the laws of physics are just the laws that govern physical stuff. And we are made of physical stuff. So we can't possibly contravene the laws that govern everything, including us. And nor should we want to. I mean, the whole idea here is that the laws of physics prohibit certain stuff, but in doing so, they tell you what is possible, what we're able to do. The laws of physics themselves are not our problem. Not our problem. They allow us to see what the problems are. In other words, the stuff that's possible, but which we haven't yet been able to accomplish, but we want to do so. So, no, the right knowledge does not allow us to change the laws of physics. No matter how powerful we get, we cannot possibly change the laws of physics unless we could get out of physical reality in some way, outside of the multiverse in some way. I guess never say never. Who knows? <laughs> But, you know, like, what's a law of it? You can't, uh, matter can't travel at the speed of light, let alone beyond the speed of light. Is that a problem? Eh, in a sense, but it doesn't actually place a prohibition on you getting anywhere in the universe. The interesting thing about relativity is, uh, as you approach the speed of light, time dilates, okay? Anything outside of you, if you're the thing that's moving close to the speed of light, all the clocks outside of you, every single process outside of your frame of reference, so to speak, which is what they call it, 
slows down, slows down. Moving clocks tick slowly. Uh-huh. And then with general relativity, it gets more complicated. So when I say moving clocks tick slowly, if, if you're moving, you would think your clock is moving. But if it, in your frame of reference, if it, here I am in my room here, if this room was suddenly uh, accelerated to you know near the speed of light, nothing would appear to be unusual to me, apart from the forces required to accelerate me to near the speed of light. But the wristwatch that I might be wearing or the clock upon the wall appears to tick normally. But if I look out the window at any clock that is zipping by, well, the whole concept of relativity is, is it me that, if I'm moving at constant velocity, is it me that's moving or is it the outside that's moving? These two situations are equivalent. If I look outside, then what I see is every physical process, every ticking clock, ticking more slowly, every physical process moving more slowly. And then when you slow down, you accelerate stuff, weird, weird stuff happens as well. What am I getting at here? What's this got to do with changing the laws of physics? So if you wanted to, you might say, well, what if we wanted to travel to the nearest large spiral galaxy to us, or nearest spiral galaxy to us, it's the Andromeda galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy is 2.2 million light years away. And we've just said, well, you can't travel at the speed of light if you're something made of matter. Is this this particular law, this this being unable to travel at the speed of light if you're made of matter, which is what human beings are and what your rocket would be made of, presumably, as well. Or even if you could re- remove somehow the mass, if you could remove the mass from matter so that you were weightless, then you could travel at the speed of light, but there's no getting beyond the speed of light so far as we know. So let's say that's a physical law. Is this a problem for getting to somewhere like the Andromeda galaxy, if that's where you want to get to? And well, perhaps surprisingly to some people, the answer is no. You might say, well, hold on. If the Andromeda galaxy is 2.2 million light years away, if you're traveling at the speed of light, surely it takes you 2.2 million years to get there. Ah, yes and no. (laughs) If you're an observer here on Earth watching the spaceship travel, to the Andromeda galaxy, then yes, if that spaceship was travelling at the speed of light, remembering that it can't, but let's say it's it's travelling at the there's a slight fraction below the speed of light via some mechanism known in the distant future. We've also got problems there of accelerating such a mass to to very close to the speed of light. You need a lot of energy in order to get that mass, and as as because as the as that mass of the rocket and the person, the passengers on the rocket, as it gets closer and closer to the speed of light, the, the mass dilates, the thing gains, it's harder and harder to accelerate the thing closer and closer to the speed of light, requiring more and more energy. The energy quickly exceeds all the energy that is available in the galaxy. Okay, you can do these calculations. That aside, <laughs> let's say that we can travel through space at the speed of light. We've, 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 we've covered that somehow or other by removing the mass from matter. Doesn't it take 2.2 million years to get there? And a human being doesn't live for 2.2 million years. And wouldn't it be a boring journey anyway if you're going all the way from here to there and it's going to take you 2.2 million years? Well, if again, if you're here on Earth, then according to observers on the Earth who are stationary, they will measure it that it takes 2.2 million years. But for you <laughs> on the spaceship that is traveling at the speed of light, you can get there instantly. Photons get everywhere instantly. Now, if this has just freaked you out, then I just encourage you to um, do a little research into relativity theory. The faster you go, the more lengths contract. And, and, and at the limit, when you get to the speed of light, lengths contract to zero. 
And so because of that, a photon that leaves here on Earth and travels to the Andromeda galaxy gets there instantly in its frame of reference. It experiences no time passing, okay? Photons experience no time passing. I know, mind-bending. And let's say you're just traveling ever so slightly slower than the speed of light, then you won't get there instantly, but you'll get there very, very quickly, arbitrarily quickly, in fact. You know, if you, you, There is such a velocity that if you left the Earth and wanted to get to the Andromeda galaxy 2.2 million light years away, that it would only take you 10 years or one year or 10 minutes or one minute. And for photons, as I say, instantly. So that law of physics, that, which places a prohibition on velocity... Okay, you can't exceed the speed of light and you can't even get to the speed of light if you've got mass, is not a problem for actually travelling anywhere in the universe because relativity allows for uh, you to get there in the universe. However, of course, if you want to come back again, then, yeah, you're going to find everyone that you loved and cared about and all of civilization here on Earth gone Okay, because if you went all the way there and turned around and immediately came back traveling at the speed of light, then 2.2 million years to get there, 2.2 million years to get back, 4.4 million years would have passed. Who knows what the, for you, it wouldn't have. For you, it's almost instant, right? You almost get there and back instantly. But everyone on the earth has, the earth has experienced 4.4 million years passing. And so the earth will be very different. That's a problem, <laughs> possibly for you, but problems are parochial, aren't they? You know, that's your problem, okay? You, you have to make a choice at that point if this was a possibility for you. What's more important? Being able to stay with the things and people you care about here on Earth or travel all the way to the Andromeda galaxy? Uh, you can't have both unless you're taking everyone and everything you care about with you. <laughs> I, this will be a problem for interstellar travelers of the future. Speaking of, you know, there is that movie, Interstellar, which, which actually um, touches on, on, on this. Well worth seeing. So thank you, David Hearn, for that, that question. That's a fun one. Next is from Jeff Coast Bourbon <laughs> at JC Bourbon. Uh, his question is, he's written a bit on education. Does he have any th updated thoughts? So that's me. I have written a bit on education, you know, that's where I sort of spent, I guess, most of my uh, professional career, for want of another word. Excuse me. Any updated thoughts? Not really. I mean, I guess the only thing I emphasise is incrementalism. Because I want to um, win the argument, so to speak that there's a poverty of the entire philosophy which, and, and, and tradition which causes us to send children to school. I don't like it. I think that, um, you know, school is coercive. School has a whole lot of problems. It's a centre of indoctrination, all of that stuff. And I think the place should have the metaphorical bomb placed under it and we can, we can, get, we can do without it. That said, it's... it's that is such a minority view that there's almost no... It's not that there's no point making it. We should make the argument. It's just that it gets very little traction. Even in people that are very closely allied with what might be regarded as the worldview that I tend to present on TopCast. Let's take, for example, the objectivists, the Ayn Rand objectivists. They're very much about 
um, uh, uh, individual human rights, of course, okay? The, the right to your own life, the right to be in control of your life, all that sort of stuff. Remarkably, except when it comes to children to a large extent, they, they, there is still a strong tendency, not universally, okay, there are exceptions in the objectivist community, movement, whatever you want to call it, who would say, well, children deserve full human rights as well. But I think that's still a minority view even among objectivists. They think that, well, you know, the children still need to go off to school. If only we could improve the schools, then uh, it would be even more worthwhile to send them. You know, perhaps if they all had to read Atlas Shrugged and The Virtue of Selfishness, then it would be even better to send the children off to this institution, even if it was coercive, even if it was compulsory and so on and so forth, which is obviously not my view. Okay, even if school was an ideal place where, ideal, I say ideal, where they were learning better stuff, where everyone was sort of, you know, shown the joys, the true joys of science and philosophy and Karl Popper, and, you know, and, and, and the beginning of infinity was the standard text. David Deutsch would be having conniptions, <laughs> but let's say it was, let's say it was something like that. I still wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't want it to be coercive. I wouldn't want to send kids there at all. I think kids should have the choice. So I, I haven't got any updated thoughts in respect of that. I just have, I guess, uh, more and more I'm emphasizing the incrementalism because I know that there are people within the orbit of our, our, um, you know, the, 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 who are enthusiastic um, 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 supporters of uh, Popperian epistemology, David Deutsch's worldview, um, these ideas about optimism. They're enthusiastic supporters for all of that, including the idea that we should somehow undermine the present system of schooling, including all of its coercive aspects. But if we want to make real progress towards that project, I think within the foreseeable future, within perhaps our lifetimes, then there has to be a recognition of the fact that the majority of people are already not with us, that when they hear about this, they think craziness, they turn off. And so therefore, it has to be an incremental dismantling of the most coercive aspects. And that is happening in some ways. It's two steps forward and one step back. Corporal punishment is by and large, it has by and large been eliminated from the system. Giving, providing more choice in subjects has become a thing, which is better. Okay, you can't choose to leave the school in many, many jurisdictions. Uh, uh, but Britain seems to be a shiny example I've learned about this. That in fact, it's not required that you attend school, but it's required you still be educated at home in some way and the government is going to check. I, of course, think, I've written on this and I don't want to go back through the arguments, that, that children desperately want to learn. They're enthusiastic about learning. You can't stop a child from learning, but you can stunt their desire to learn as a teacher, as a parent, as an adult, by making it uninteresting, by making it boring, by turning children off. Children will, will actually naturally find mathematics and poetry and music and all of that stuff interesting. The fact that they don't mean something that gone, has gone wrong with the way in which it's been presented to them. That's the issue. I think a lot of people know this. So, so, so anyway, in a situation where this is going to happen in a coercive schooling system, providing more and more choice 
is the solution to that. Having giving parents the capacity to choose schools, giving students the capacity to choose teachers and their mode of being taught at schools is, is absolutely a positive step. There are more and more schools taking this idea on where the, where, the, where the student does not have to do the basics, what are called the basics. They can choose to do other stuff. And, and they find, the children find that in doing other stuff, then they want to know the stuff they thought they weren't interested in. You know, um, a kid who wants to just do robotics, but they're not actually interested in mathematics, soon learns that, well, coding sometimes requires a certain amount of mathematics. And so they learn it. They learn as required. And they have fun, they're more fun by doing it because it's relevant to their problem situation of what they want to do. So having more choice at school is an incremental improvement on coercively forcing everyone to do exactly the same subjects all the time. Having the option of homeschooling increasingly, much better than forcing everyone to go to school. I think one of the great benefits of COVID is parents got to see, have, an, have a greater insight into what was being taught at school and realised just the absolute poverty of what goes on in classrooms sometimes. That's good, okay? The standards should be higher with respect to the standards of teachers caring about their students because many teachers, many parents, I think, saw that some teachers, not all, but there are this not insignificant minority of teachers who were just turning it up, turning up and phoning it in. Bad. So, so that's an incremental improvement and one of the virtues of something like lockdown. Lockdown had that great virtue that suddenly everyone was being <laughs> taught from home. Why not let that continue? Why not let that continue? I'll tell you what, that, 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 I thought that really that would be a huge step towards uh, volunteer, more voluntary schooling. And let's face it, I think the reality is, and this is good, when you've got home schooling of that kind en masse, where the entire nation, or at least the entire state, population of school students is at home going to school, they're not. Number one, most of the official schoolwork can get done not in six hours or seven hours, whatever the usual school day is, but in two or three hours. Okay, I heard this from, from lots of people, that, 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 that the kids were getting through the work much, much more quickly because the teachers weren't setting so much, great. Okay, okay so that, that's a huge step in the right direction, and which leaves so much more time for the kids for the rest of the day to do what they want and learn in particular, learn what they want. I know a lot of adults have this view of children that if they're not being given official lessons, then they're wasting their time. That they're, they're wasting their time. I mean, you know, learning stuff that the adults aren't interested in. <laughs> Making TikToks, how terrible. Learning to use the most advanced technology to be creative, how terrible. Yeah, so so, so that, that, that's all been great. Uh, so updated thoughts, yeah. Let's, let's expand what happened during COVID and make it not about when pandemics happen. Let, let, let's have homeschooling all the time. That's an incremental change. And if it worked then, why can't it work now? Uh, maybe the next generation, maybe the kids that went through COVID, maybe there'll be some who, who experienced that for, what, some years? At least, perhaps a, a whole year of, of basically school from home? Maybe when they have children, 
There will be a not insignificant minority, perhaps majority, who think that they learned better. Hopefully they remember. Um, one of my articles on, on learning was about how people at school almost universally hate the experience. Even the ones who do really well at school, they, they, they know that they'd rather be doing something else almost every single day. Even the ones that, you know, turn up and do very well. You know, I was one of these kids who turned up, uh, I kind of enjoyed it, kind of uh, went to school and had a broadly positive experience. That said, I still loved the days when I was off sick or stayed at home or something else because, well, you were free. You were free to do what you wanted. And in my case and many people's cases like this, you, you, you'd... You'd learn your own stuff. You wouldn't waste the day. You'd actually read and write and do fun stuff that, that improved you as a person, which is ostensibly what school is about anyway, but tends to fail it. So perhaps we've got to look forward to the, the next generation. If they can... What I was saying there, I just forgot. What I was saying there is that even those kids, the kids that have a good time at school... Much less the kids that had a, a bad time at school. They all come out of school and within one or two years, they talk about how wonderful school is. They forget. They have these rose-coloured glasses about what school was like. Ironically, it's often the kids that did worst at school, who did terribly at it, who had a hor horrible experience, who, when they have children, really want their children to go to school and to do well at school. It's like, I didn't do well at school, I hated it, but hey, if only you do what I didn't do and, you know, really try hard, then your life will be better in some way. Not realising that that's what exactly what their own parents were saying to them. You know, try really hard at school and they didn't like it. They didn't do well and, 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 and they regret not doing well. What do you think is going to be the experience of your own child? <laughs> they're, 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 in all likelihood, they're not going to enjoy the experience either because that's just the nature of school. It is basically a universal truth. Children, like adults, do not want to be forced, coerced into doing something they don't want to do. And it doesn't have to be this way. I know that, there's a, again, that's a ubiquitous idea that, well, life is just about having to do things you don't want to do. No, it's not. No, it's really not. Uh, for anyone who um, wants more on this, follow the great Luli Tennant, who talks about um, this whole idea of non-coercion. There's a lot of people in this space now. Um, you know, my time is limited. I, I, I touch on this now and again, but um, clearly, in order to flourish as a creative human being, you can't be coerced. It's a, it's it's antagonistic towards being the best person you can, and this is precisely what we do to students to children early on in their lives. School is serving the purpose of childcare, more or less, in our society. Children are doing much of their most relevant learning outside of the classroom. Technology has been a game changer, so they are learning to create and learn in ways that people of previous generations can barely grasp, I think, to really know what's going on. And so the more that kids can be outside the classroom pursuing their own interests, uh, the more we'll have excited, enthusiastic problem solvers of the future rather than people who um, ha have been indoctrinated into 
not only certain kinds of lessons, but lessons about lessons, lessons about how learning should take place and how the next generation should be enculturated into uh, a way of thinking which basically comes down to uh, seeding your critical faculties to the authorities. Okay, we could go on and on and on about this. All, all I was asked was, do I have any updated thoughts? Clearly not, except if we're going to change the minds of people, the majority of which who hold completely different views uh, to the one I've just expressed there. We need to do it incrementally, softly, slowly, um, perhaps talk up the virtues of something like homeschooling. And then once we get there, we can look further and look further and look further. And in the limit, which it seems to me to be quite a long way off, uh, school has gone by the wayside. Uh, the, 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 there's a system of learning in place where uh, if you want to learn something, then you uh, employ the services of a wiser, more knowledgeable person and they can tutor you in some way, shape or form um, without you ever being forced uh, to, 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 to go to lessons and be given answers to questions, never asked. Uh, okay, moving on. This is a question from... <laughs> Dink. <laughs> I don't know why I found this so funny. Dingbatus sapiens. <laughs> At Dingbat sapiens. Okay. And the question is, please ask him slash her. I'm a him. Please ask him what fallibilism means. Also, are we a self-domesticated species? And why does Adam Sandler have a career? <laughs> okay. What does fallibilism mean? Fallibilism is the stance that we can be wrong. And in my view, it entails um, realism. Because if you can be wrong, that means there's something to be objectively wrong about. Fallibilism is the stance that error is everywhere. And you, as a person, as a human being, can always be in error no matter what. It doesn't matter how certain you are of something. Because certainty is merely an emotion, merely a, a feeling you have. So it just means that error is everywhere and it, it, it gives you a certain degree of modesty coupled with optimism. Modesty on the one hand that maybe someone else, anyone else could have a better idea than you. And optimism because if there's an error, there are, there are errors are ubiquitous, then you can correct those errors and make progress and things can get better. But, but essentially, fallibilism is the stance that you could always be in error. You could always be wrong. That's it. Okay, it's the, the, the absolute opposite to dogmatism. And many, many people are – if you're not a fallibilist, you're a dogmatist in some way, in some way, shape or form. You're dogmatic on some particular thing. doesn't matter what it is. Um, it's, uh, you're either a dogmatist or you're not. You can't be a little bit of a dogmatist. Yeah, some people are dogmatic about many things. Some people are dogmatic about one thing. It's kind of like, um, are you religious? Do you believe in God or not? Oh no, I, you know, I don't believe in all the pantheon of Hindu Hindu gods, or I don't believe in the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. I just believe in one of them. Well, you're just as <laughs> you're still just as religious. So, a dogmatic person is someone who is anti-fallibilist about at least one thing. You know, who has who says of one particular thing. Well, I've got no doubts in this of on this. Okay. That includes fallibilism, by the way. Fallibilism is something we can be fallible about. I can be mistaken about it. Now, does that mean that I would regard fallibilism as false? It just means that you could have 
a, an erroneous understanding of what fallible. Can fallibilism be wrong? Yes. Can our understanding of fallibilism be wrong? Yes. Does that mean that therefore dogmatism must be true? No. <laughs> it just means that our, our, what we know fallibilism to be could be improved in the future. And I expect that it would be. Okay, But at, at present, our best understanding of it is what I've just provided there, that we can always be in error. Um, but what it means to be in error... We might gradually come to have a deeper understanding of what that is and look back and go, ah, that previous understanding of what fallibilism was has been superseded by something better. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, the, the second part of the question, also, are we a self-domesticated species? I think so. I guess, you know, we, we've taught ourselves how to survive. We're the first such species, I guess, to do that. We we have instincts as well, but by and large, the way in which we have survived here on Earth, domesticated ourselves, has been through explanatory knowledge. The one unique thing that separates us, not the one unique thing, but, it, but the, the crucial thing that separates us from every other extant and extinct species on the planet. Why does Adam Sandler have a career? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to take. I know, I know it's a tongue-in-cheek uh, question, but I'm actually going to uh, take it seriously. Um, you know, I talk on Talkcast about epistemology and science, physics, philosophy of science, optimism, a certain amount of politics, economics, that kind of thing. I don't talk about comedy, even though it's one of my deep interests. You know, I don't talk about the music I like. I, you know, I happen to like Korean pop music, specifically girl bands, all the way from. Girls' Generation, Tiara, Kara, all the way through to today, twice. Uh, that will ring true to some people. But I don't talk about it, okay? It's just one of the things I don't talk about. Um, there's lots of things that I'm really interested in and I don't talk about. One thing I'm really interested in uh, happens to be stand-up comedy. Uh, I listen to lots of stand-up comedies and actually my favourite podcast apart from my own, <laughs> my favourite podcast is um, Conan O'Brien's one, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. I love it. I listen to, you know, sort of religiously listen to this one. It's the guilty pleasure, I suppose. And he interviews lots of really interesting people. Uh, and in the same way that Joe Rogan talks to lots of comedians, Mark Marin talks to lots of comedians, I really like hearing, not only watching stand-up for the entertainment value, but there's a real... Uh, interesting parallel between the history of comedy and the way it's developed and what goes on in science that 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 stand-up comedy seems to get better over time at least uh, there are stand-up comedians today seem to be objectively better than what they were in the past what they're able to do the way they refine their acts and so on and so forth uh, there are some worse comedians now there have been some worse turns recently um with woke comedy you know but i still listen to even some of that what's that got to do with anything here why does adam sandler have a career i say all that because i think adam sandler is a great stand-up comedian he's one of these very very rare people who you know started off as a stand-up comedian really wanted to get into stand-up comedy gradually got, got himself onto saturday night live which is like the the objective for so many american comedians is to try and get onto that television show and then from there not merely have a viable career in the movie and in the film industry, but become really, really successful. So why does Adam Sandler have a career? Because he's a, he's a comedic genius. Now, you might not like it. <laughs> you might not like the fact that uh, you might not like his style of comedy. Uh, I do. 
Uh, I, I, most of the famous comedians, I'm hard-pressed to think of a comedian I don't uh, really like. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien, on his podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, actually interviews Adam Sandler. And they, they happen to be friends. Uh, a lot of the time, Conan's interviewing people he doesn't really know but might have appeared on his talk show. Conan O'Brien, I think, stands above all other talk show hosts that have ever been on American television. Uh, I think he's just objectively better than so many of the others. Not simply because he's funny, although he is that, but because he, he avoids politics. <laughs> he manages to speak to... To everyone. Okay? I think that the Letterman kind of did that as well to some extent. But now, of course, well, I mean, it's just a car wreck as far as the, the, um, that, that talk show genre has gone. I mean, it's really unfortunate that unless, unless you are from a particular side of politics, then there's nothing for you. And why these people need to keep hammering politics, I don't know. But I, I've long since... Basically, I, I still, you know, will watch the odd Colbert clip, let's say. But really, it's just, it's kind of painful. If I want politics, I will go to the news. I will go to a proper political commentator, someone whose business it is, you know, has spent their lives sort of looking into this kind of stuff. But I'm not really interested in politics in the first place. But you know, going to a, a talk show host for for being badgered about particular political opinions um, is is annoying, <laughs> and it's not the only source of comedy, which is why I like Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien has a deep understanding of not only talk show history but comedy as well, and you can talk about the history of comedy. Um, and I mention him because, yeah, his interview with Sandler just reveals sort of the genius of Sandler and how Sandler is well-respected by other comedians, what it is he's been able to accomplish, the, the, the courageous way in which Adam Sandler just behaves like an absolute goose. I mean, it's not easy to do what he did. It's just like uh, it's not easy for Ricky Gervais to do what he does. There's comedians and then there's other comedians. There are, you know, I have great respect for anyone who's willing to stand up on stage and do it, but there are differences between comedians in the same way there are differences between scientists, between the kind of risks they're willing to take career-wise and how they're um, really able to go to the foundations of what is either funny or what is, uh, happens to be true in science okay, and, and, and really sort of upset apple carts, so to speak. Now, Ricky Gervais is a really interesting one because I followed his career all the way from the office, and before the off, before he started the office, you know, he had this radio show in uh, the United Kingdom on XFM, which went on for a, a number of years. That's where he really got his break, where he really first started. He and Stephen Merchant, before they had a podcast, they were on radio, and you can find these radio shows out there. It's uh, hundreds of hours worth of um, Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant and and their producer Carl Pilkington, people will know him, um, is there is out there <laughs> on the internet to download and I've listened to that a number of times. It's hilarious. I mean, and then that evolved into a podcast. He was one of the very many of us who do podcasting now can thank Ricky Gervais because he was one the one who really was first there producing podcasts very early on. Uh, uh, and he had some of the, the, the funniest stuff I think ever. Now, it is true that, you know, that the overwhelming majority of comedians come from a 
particular side of politics. And that that's fine. I mean, uh, there are some comedians now increasingly that are from the other side of politics. But as I say, the, some of the best comedians, you kind of don't know. It's like the best teachers. You kind of don't know what their politics are, right? They don't mention it. They allow you to form your own opinions. I think Ricky Gervais is kind of like this, even though you know he's sort of a left-leaning, anti-human certain way. I've talked about my disagreements with Ricky Gervais before on TalkCast. Conan O'Brien's the same kind of thing. Adam Sandler as well. You know, you, you, don't, you don't get the impression that, he, that, it, that the comedy all has to be about how terrible Trump is, how terrible the Republican Party is, how, how stupid conservatives are and that kind of thing, okay? That can be part of comedy. I don't mind. But when it's the entire act almost, or every single night, <laughs> it's the same theme, gets boring. Okay, so I think Adam Sandler has a career because he's a great stand-up comedian and he's achieved what so many stand-up comedians really want to achieve, which is to become a great actor as well. They, most of them seem to want to get into to film as well. And, and he, uh, I haven't seen many of his dramas, but but um, I've seen at least one and, and he seems to be a very good dramatic actor as well. There you go. Even though that was tongue-in-cheek, I still <laughs> provided an answer. All right. I'm up to Keith Manshandon. Keith Manshandon. Uh, at Keith Manshandon. Sorry for mispronouncing your name. And the question is, how would you guard against knowledge production that's potentially catastrophic to humanity? For example, the knowledge to create easy nukes a weapon of mass destruction that can be made by anyone with a high school diploma. Okay, well, actually, I think... Well, I, I talked about this, actually, uh, in the podcast that will come out with Iona. Um, uh, but again, not until October. Um, I'm pretty sure, I, yeah, I touched on this anyway. Okay, so, so that question there, I just want to emphasize kind of a... A, an aspect of it. it. It says, again, just to repeat, how would you guard against knowledge production that's potentially catastrophic to humanity? For example, the knowledge to create easy nukes. Okay. So this is very different to asking, uh, how would you guard against um, easy nukes? How would you guard against knowledge production that's potentially catastrophic? is asking how would you guard against knowledge production? There's no such thing as knowledge that potentially couldn't lead to a catastrophe. That's the nature of knowledge. That's the circumstance we are always in. So therefore, my answer is I would never guard against knowledge production. The production of knowledge is inherently unpredictable. The creation of knowledge is inherently unpredictable. You don't know what the next bit of knowledge is that's going to be created by virtue of the definition of what created is. Okay? Coming uh, you know, into, into being um, without precedent. So we can't know ahead of time because we can't predict how knowledge production is going to unfold over time. And this is why... Prohibitions on certain kinds of research is absolutely anathema to the worldview that I try to promote. People, intellectuals, scientists of various kinds, entire podcasts <laughs> are devoted to 
listing problems. People have made careers out of this, out of telling us about the risks of the AI apocalypse to come, catastrophic climate change, nuclear war, the next pandemic, nanotechnology getting out of control, the Large Hadron Collider producing a, 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 um, a, a, a black hole, a singularity, and consuming the world. Name your bit of technology and your bit of knowledge and you will have an academic or an intellectual out there somewhere or other telling you about how it's going to go wrong. And some of them will even put probabilities on this. They'll pluck them out of the air, but they'll put probabilities on this sort of stuff. And they'll use Bayesian reasoning to try and um, impress you with how precise they're being with these predictions. I want to say that, and what I, what I said to Iona, I think, I wanted to make a, a, a separate podcast on this, and I, I may yet do this, is that those things are reasonable problems to list, potential problems, okay? But I want to suggest that there is a master problem that subsumes all of these and makes all these other ones look like peanuts. And that master problem is slow progress or the slowing of progress. Because that is the one problem that will guarantee the extinction of our species. All of these other ones, there is a risk associated with them. But the risk is only made real once we have created the knowledge that that thing can actually be done. So once we have the knowledge to create super intelligent artificial intelligence, okay, I, I don't know that that's a thing. We will have the knowledge of how to constrain that superintelligent artificial intelligence as well. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm saying superintelligent artificial intelligence. I'm not saying artificial general intelligence. Quite a different separate thing, categorically different. As I've said recently, these two things should be regarded as the opposite of one another. Artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence. Artificial intelligence is that thing which must slavishly obey its program. It's programming. It follows an algorithm. Artificial general intelligence is precisely the opposite. It's the thing that must have the potential to disobey. That's not what artificial intelligence does. It's a computer. It's a computer program. It follows a computer program. Whatever the case. Um, knowledge that is potentially catastrophic has to be pursued. It's the only way we can solve our problems. Because all knowledge can potentially lead to the, the catastrophe. We want nuclear physics. <laughs> it would have been so much better if we had nuclear physics early on. Does it come with dangers? Of course, it comes with the danger of nuclear weapons. But by the time you have the capacity for an easy nuke, let's, say, let, let, let's think about in the limit, okay? In the limit, could it be possible... Well, it will be. Is it physically possible because... you? The, the, can be such a thing as a universal constructor, okay? Recent, my most recent podcast immediately before this one is, touches on the universal constructor from constructor theory. The universal constructor can construct anything that's physically constructible. Now, one of those things would be a homemade nuclear weapon. If everyone in the future has a, 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 a universal constructor, you know, the, the generalization of a 3D printer, so that you, so long as you've got the program, you enter the program into the universal constructor and it's going to build the thing for you. One such program would be a program for a nuclear weapon. Okay, there you go. Worried? I'm not worried. Why? 
Because once you have the capacity to do that, to create that thing, you also have the capacity to undo the problem that would be caused by that thing in time. What do I mean by that? Well, I, I can imagine a, a scenario. In a, in a world where people have the capacity to 3D print their own homemade nuclear weapon, we're, we're in the far distant future and in a realm of kind of not science fiction, but just of, 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 of a distant future we can only begin to guess at. Well, let me begin to only guess at it as well. In this future, we also have a situation where light speed signals detect the creation of critical masses of fissile material like uranium and plutonium. That once that certain amount of stuff is created uh, in a city somewhere, an alarm goes off in an office somewhere uh, immediately. And immediately, uh, at light speed, nanobots react and deconstruct the thing using the same 3D printer. Or something like that. Once you've got the knowledge of how to create the problem, the knowledge of how to generate the solution also comes along with that in almost all cases. And the key thing here is the reason why that is the case is because the good guys, the guys that live in good guys, good guys and girls, whatever you want to say, the people that occupy our civilization a, in a culture of criticism are the good guys. We're the good people. We're the ones that are making rapid progress, so we're going to get there first. And simply because of the fact we are the good guys and we get there first, we're also looking for the solutions to the potential problems that might arise from a misuse of this techno technology. So I would never guard against knowledge production. Quite the opposite. I would try increasingly to remove the barriers to knowledge production, which is what we've got in place right now. We're not as dynamic a society as we could be because of rules and regulations and laws and um, even, even political and moral ideas that tend to cause people not to pursue research into things that they otherwise would have if not, if not for social and political pressure. In a world where, as the question says, the knowledge to create e easy nukes, a weapon of mass destruction that can be made by anyone with a high school diploma, in that world where that's going on, anyone with a college diploma has even greater technology that can undo that particular issue. I can imagine all sorts of things. Whatever it is, whatever the technology is that allows you to do that is going to exist in lockstep with a technology that undoes it. You, you could imagine, uh, you know, uh, someone with this high school diploma has made this bomb and they're, they're going to try and set it off, <laughs> you know, in, 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 you know in, in their basement or something like that. That, again, at light speed, something or other happens to prevent the thing from going off. We're, 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 again, we're in, we're in a, a strange world of, of, of pessimism here. But for whatever problem, uh, there is a solution. But the one problem that is guaranteed, guaranteed to lead to the end of civilization is the one that slows progress. Problems that slow progress, regulations and that kind of thing, uh, uh, just a general attitude towards um, progress, technology, knowledge production, that is pessimistic, is the biggest concern 
for civilization, for, for any dynamic society, because what it does is it reduces the dynamism of that society, causing it to tend in the direction of stasis, and stasis is the guaranteed way of going extinct. All other civilizations that have existed before ours cease to be, have ceased to be because they could not solve their problem in time. They were insufficiently dynamic. Some were near perfectly static. Some were quite dynamic, but again, didn't have the knowledge in time to solve the problems they needed to. As David Deutsch makes the the point, if we want to be the one exception to this, then we have to continue to rely on this one thing that we've got. This capacity to explain the world around us, to correct errors, solve problems. And we need to do that rapidly, far more rapidly even than what we're doing it now. Rapid as it is, it needs to go faster. Because people are dying, literally dying. And what I mean by that is we could have effective immortality. We could certainly eradicate disease. That will be done one day by our descendants. It will be done one day by our descendants. We will learn the cures for all disease. We will have nanorobots floating through our bloodstreams and whatever, repairing every single organ, destroying every single virus and, and, and bacteria, allowing us to be effectively super people in eternal youth. That's physically possible. There's no law of physics preventing that from happen, happening. And in a world where it's physically possible and we want it, it will one day happen. We just have to create the knowledge somehow. And any way in which you guard against knowledge production is a way in which you're slowing that reality down. So it's urgent. It's urgent to increase the rate of progress. It's urgent to eliminate barriers to creating progress. It doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all and we recklessly go out um, uh, doing anything at all. Enough people are making that argument. Enough people are making that argument. It seems like, as I say, every intellectual that not only has it, their own podcast but that goes on a podcast, that has an interview, that writes an article, tells us about the problems and the reasons why we could should slow down progress, what's wrong with people, that argument's being made. So I'm not interested in making that case. Everyone else has made that case. Even other supposed optimists make that case that there are dangers. Whoop-de-doo, we've heard it before. Everyone knows. I want to make the case that you need to embrace rapid progress, far more rapid progress than what we have now. Rapid as it is, virtuous as our civilization is, it could be so much better, so much better. So I think we should try harder. Uh, and in particular, we should try harder um, not to guard against knowledge production, but to do precisely the opposite, to, to, to engage in practices and policies, rules and regulations, which allow for individuals, businesses, corporations to flourish far more fully than they are, far more fully than they are. The people who are scared and pessimistic and who want to live in a world where, um, under the precautionary principle where they're concerned about any particular new invention, creation, discovery, give them New Zealand. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> let them stay at home, cloistered. I don't mind. Just let the rest of the great inventors, creators, thinkers, scientists of the world, get on with the project of solving our problems faster, producing knowledge faster. It does come with hazards. 
But the greatest hazard, the master problem, as I like to say, is slow progress. Okay. Next uh, is uh, from Dean of No at so underscore irritable. Hmm. His question is, what is scientific thinking? Ah, scientific thinking isn't a special kind of thinking. Thinking is basically thinking. What is rational thinking? What is uh, ways of reasoning? Yeah. The science itself is distinguished by being a mechanism for correcting errors in our theories of the physical world. We distinguish science from all the other human intellectual endeavours by whether or not the explanations can be tested or not. Anyone can engage in scientific thinking. Everyone can be a scientist, as everyone can be a philosopher, an intellectual, a thinker, a writer, if you're interested. Now, um, so when it comes to scientific thinking, there are certain practices that people engage in when they go through the process of science. I mean, but the most important one is 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 creativity. If you want to make progress, to, to that that means trying to identify errors in existing theories, which means going about and finding observations inconsistent with existing theories. So therefore, you have a problem. Um, it, although people like to say, and I think I made this point in my last podcast, um, uh, people tend to have this idea that. You know, many a beautiful theory is slain by an ugly fact. Well, it's not entirely true, okay, that, that, that idea. Uh, many a beautiful theory is made problematic by an ugly fact, okay, but it could be the case that sometimes the ugly fact is ugly by virtue of the fact it hasn't been uh, a, care, a carefully controlled observation, let's say. That ugly fact might be just a poorly collected piece of data. Um, so... This is part of scientific thinking, being able to figure out whether or not when you encounter these problems out there in the world in science, whether or not the problem you're encountering indicates a true problem with the theory that you have or with the method by which you've made the observation. This is sometimes known as the Juhem Quine thesis. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to give a trope list of responses to a a question like that to what is scientific thinking like scientific thinking is the ability to collect data very carefully and to repeat your experiment and to ensure that your conclusion follows validly from the method that you're controlling your variables and ensuring you have one independent variable and one dependent variable. okay all of that stuff can be learned by looking up a textbook on you know, high school science what i would what i would say is genuine scientific thinking is having a critical attitude towards science. Not so critical that you think that existing scientific theories are flawed because you've found uh, the new next replacement of relativity theory and you say, I've proved Einstein wrong because I've got a, a theory of magnetism which shows how you can travel beyond the speed of light. You might be right. But in general, there is a reason why I have this word crank. And crank, crank, cranks are sometimes important because sometimes they turn out to be correct. But the true issue with cranks, which is a person who tends to have uh, deep misconceptions about existing theories and therefore thinks that an already refuted idea in physics that usually occurs with an already refuted idea from classical physics is in fact true and is able to overturn something in general relativity or you know, quantum theory. Okay, this, this is where 
scientific cranks within the area of physics tend to come in. You know, someone, someone thinks that um, they've got a mathematical proof of why relativity theory is incorrect. Despite <laughs> decades of experimental testing testifying to the fact that classical physics can no, is no longer tenable. Okay, classical physics of the kind of Newton. Okay, Newtonian mechanics is no longer tenable because it fails to account for observations like, simple example, what's going on in the Large Hadron Collider. Okay, so, yeah, uh, that's what a crank is. So someone who, who is unable to distinguish between how evidence distinguishes between theories already guessed how to use evidence it may not be a good scientific thinker, it may not be employing good scientific thinking. So that's another part of scientific. Scientific thinking is about being certainly being creative, being able to 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 think about why this is very hard. This this part is very hard. Being able to look at existing scientific theories and thinking about where there might possibly be errors, how to identify those errors, and then here's the really hard part: coming up with something objectively better. This is such a rare thing in science. This is why a scientific thinker like Albert Einstein is rightly lauded as being the genius that he is because prior to him, there wasn't really anyone else quite at the same level able to look at something like centuries of apparent, apparent experimental evidence testifying to the correctness of Newton and Albert Einstein coming along and going, well, you know, there's these problems here. Let me completely, from the ground up, from the foundations of physics, show you a new way, a better way, which explains why Newton appeared to be right, but where he's wrong and why. And here's my new theory. That's scientific thinking par excellence. And it's a rare thing because it's hard because you really need to be passionately interested and curious and focused, you know, your, your day after day after day after day after day on nothing but those problems. I can't do it. Okay, I love physics, but not that much. <laughs> Einstein would just think and think and think. You know, Feynman, you read, read, you know, Feynman's account of his own life and what he did and how, how he went about thinking. It's just day after day after day of thinking of these particular problems. Most of us don't have that. Okay, most of us don't have – we have our interests, okay? I have my interest in – you know, a lot of people I understand would not. <laughs> not not have the same kind of interest in reading and rereading. David Deutsch's books and Karl Popper's books, okay? It's a personality trait. So too with Einstein focusing on – I'm not comparing myself to Einstein. I'm just saying that, that scientific thinking of that kind is a rarity. As rare as any other quirky kind of thing that people tend to devote their time with. And I say that because it's not a matter of, 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 of intelligence. It's a matter of interest. Einstein said this, words to this effect. Feynman said words to this effect. You know, they, they didn't regard themselves as being super intelligent, particularly more intelligent than, than other people around them. Just that they were passionately curious about certain things really interested in certain things all of that said i think there are there are ways to improve your own thinking there are common errors uh, common errors arising from 
misunderstanding how knowledge is generated and created and assessed, evaluated, that kind of thing. This is why I think um, if you're going to learn, if you want to learn any, if you're interested in this worldview and you're interested in in being a scientific thinker, then I think you could do worse than than read Popper and Deutsch and their their ways of going about. Um, uh, understanding how science works. Once you understand how science works, then of course you can be a better scientific thinker. Okay, next question uh, from an Alan Curtis at Alan underscore Curtis. Why is there only one monopolies commission? <laughs> is, that, is that like a joke? You know, they've got a monopoly on monopolies commission. What's the monopolies commission? Let me Google. Give me a second. I can guess what it is. I presume it's an American thing. Um, Okay, I can't find uh, Monopolies Commission, Monopolies Commission, an independent body. Uh, the German government has a Monopolies Commission. Um, uh, the UK government has a Competition Commission. And in Australia, we have something called the, the ACCC, <laughs> the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Okay, yeah, right. Okay, well, I'm going to say the, the, the standard thing I say on these sort of things. Why is there only one Monopolies Commission? Well, it's almost like a joke itself, isn't it? Well, they've got a monopoly on Monopolies Commission. Should we have another one so there's competition in the Monopolies Commission? Why isn't there a competitor to the um, ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer thing? I think one's too many, obviously. I think one's too many. There's no such thing as a monopoly. I'm going to take Yaron Brooks' line here and many others who've made this point before. There is no such thing as a monopoly. Until except for government and when government gets involved in something. It doesn't have to be that there is an actual competitor in the market to whatever your widget you're selling or service you're providing. It's just that potentially there could be one and potentially um, there is no advantage in law that you have or that anyone has. But government sometimes intervenes in the market and gives advantages usually to big corporations, right? Making it harder for competitors to arise. So I think one monopolies commission is too many. I think the government doesn't need to be involved in the market, broadly speaking. And broadly speaking, businesses will uh, compete. <laughs> so I think maybe, maybe this is a, is a bit of a joke behind this... Um, <laughs> behind this this particular question of course that, that 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 yeah there should be competition in monopolies commissions there should be competition in governments now now of course i don't think there should be again uh, emphasizing again i don't think there should be a government agency that deals with ensuring there aren't monopolies in the market because i don't the only way to have a monopoly a true monopoly in the market is to have coercion and force being used in the market in some way, shape, or form by a company. But in principle, that is never permitted. It's against law, the law to use coercion, force, in other words, violence. Businesses can't do it. Google cannot have a separate police force that can go out and force you to do this, that, or the other. Apple can't. Uh, the Ford Motor Company can't, etc., etc., etc. Corporations can't use force on customers or potential customers. Only the government can. The government has a monopoly on force. Now, do I think that there should be competition in government? There is. That's what we call nations. You don't like your government. Is one of the, the virtues of the state system. 
right? It's, it's states in Australia. States in Australia are basically the same, but I know in America it's even it's more virtuous in that sense that that you know you don't like California, you don't like New York, go to Texas, go to Florida. I hear about this a lot. That's competition in the in in the market to a certain extent on government. Now, of course, you've got federal government, then you've got a bit of a problem. There's no competition there. Should there be? No, there shouldn't be. And the reason there shouldn't be is because you really do need a monopoly on violence, okay? I'm with Rand on that. I'm with Rand on this tradition of law, justice, police, instantiates a whole bunch of really important knowledge about how to keep a society stable, under great change, under rapid progress. I think I tweeted about this today. Absolutely crucial that we want to protect the means of error correction, protect the means of generating knowledge really fast. I'm all about trying to make more and more rapid progress. I don't think this can happen. I don't think rapid progress would happen if we eliminated governments. I think it would happen more quickly if we reduced government power so that it was simply about protecting the means of error correction, protecting the means of competition, protecting individual rights and the rights of corporations and so on and so forth. I think then we'd have more rapid progress. Yes, absolutely. But should we eliminate and become uh, anarcho-capitalist? I can't see a path to that. Insofar as there is a logical case to be made for that, the logical case seems to be, well, if everyone was using their reason and acting perfectly reasonable all the time, then we could do that. Even then, I'm not too sure. Like, I mean, people as individuals have different preferences and their preferences will sometimes clash and there ultimately needs to be a way in which to resolve the conflict because reason alone sometimes won't do the job. Person A will be saying, I'm being perfectly reasonable. Person B will be saying, I'm being perfectly reasonable. And there will still be a clash because of creativity, because reason is not itself understood perfectly. And so because of that, we need this independent arbiter, call it the government. And the government will make mistakes and whatever. Okay, fine. But it's the price of living in a world where you want rapid progress because to eliminate the government means we once again devolve into these competing either smaller communities or individuals themselves where I think my logic seems to lead me to the place of violence, that individuals absent a government um, violence would increase, not decrease. Yes, the government is a violent institution. It is the one that has the monopoly on violence. It uses violence, sometimes um, uh, immorally. Okay? We've seen that throughout COVID. I can agree with all of that. But I still think that rapid progress is best fostered by ideally tending in the direction of minimal government with a monopoly on violence. That... Uh, I don't know what you call the curve, you know, but, you know, um, where at one end you have a super authoritarian government and progress is slowed because the government is overly coercive. There's a sweet spot where the government has a monopoly on violence, but otherwise minimal impact on people's lives and in the market and so on and so forth. But then there's diminishing returns once you take away the government's ability to intervene in um conflict between individuals and corporations and that kind of thing to the point where if the government has gone altogether, you have an anarchic system where the strong men, as Rand would call them, the brutes, rule the day. And then you have 
as bad a situation, as, 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 as violent and corrupt a situation, where only the strongest are able to... Um, uh, the strongest end up gaining authority anyway. So it's, I guess it's like a circle. The government disappears. What happens is the, the biggest, strongest gang then takes over. And you've got an authoritarian regime once more anyway. So at either end, it's kind of a utopian idea, okay? You've got communism, one utopia. You know, if only the government took care of everything, we didn't have free markets and the government was just distributing everything so that they were... You know, you've got this utopia, in other words. Government will solve every problem. That presumes that government can do a perfectly erroneous, in, a, a perfectly a capable job of allowing for rapid progress. It knows how to solve the mistakes rather than individuals, even though individuals are the ones that do the thinking. Similarly, I think that the, uh, the argument that, well, if you take away the government, then we'll all just be using our reason or we can have our own private security and whatever. I think it ignores the fact that you know, people are creative. We are born with different... We started, I started this AMA with talking about people are you know, born with different propensities, grow up with different propensities. You can't enslave people to have non-violent tendencies. Some people will just make the error of being violent. Some people will make the error of wanting to be uh, a dictator. And in a world without a government that has long traditions of avoiding dictatorships, the dictator will arise. In an anarchic situation, gangs will form. Violence will happen. And those people might very well say, well, all we are is a big private security company. But now you have to pay us protection money. Now, I don't know how absent a government... I've read the literature from <laughs> the anarchists on this point. I just think they underestimate the power of tradition and the knowledge of how a society maintains its stability while undergoing rapid progress has instantiated in its institutions. That, that, it's just absolutely crucial that we don't know how to keep society stable. We don't know how civilization in the West and the Enlightenment has done what it's done to the degree of fidelity required that says we could do away with these institutions. Now, incrementally, should we undo the power of the government? Absolutely. Okay, I, so I think we should all stay on the same side until then. This is one of the great problems I have with uh, objectivists to some extent, you know, the, the anarcho-capitalist to another extent. Uh, you know, someone like me who's a Burkean tradition, whatever you want to call it, who says the institutions are important, we need to have a, a more minimal government, we're all heading in the same direction. Basically, we are a very small minority, I would say, when the rest are either um, uh, authoritarian-type conservatives or left-leaning socialist communists. And in either of those cases, they like big government. And that's the tendency that people are heading in right now, it seems, especially in the socialist direction. So forget about infighting between us, to a large extent, it should all be on the same side to just say, well, let's incrementally take back, you know, some of this um, uh, regulation stuff, taxation stuff, and allow for more flourishing. And if the advantages of more flourishing are obvious, which they will be, then, then hopefully more regulations are removed, more taxation is removed, and more flourishing follows. But at the moment, that's not happening at all. Uh, I think one of the reasons is that uh, the, the herding of cats issue 
among people who believe in or endorse liberty, who think liberty is the way to go, is an issue. So many have internecine wars between themselves. You know, the anarcho-capitalists will be... <laughs> I think I said this in a recent podcast as well. It's almost like, um, you know, the, the, <laughs> there'll be an objectivist... Um, uh, debating an anarcho-capitalist in a lecture theatre somewhere <laughs> when <laughs> when the genuine fascists or communists bash the door in and take them both away to the gulag. So, you know, how about we all just stay on the same side arguing for liberty and you know, individual human rights and free markets and all that kind of thing uh, until <laughs> we have this um, rapid deregulation of the market and the decrease in taxation and so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. But good question. Tongue and Tongue-in-cheek question from Alan Curtis, I think. think, Is this my last question? I think it should be anyway because it's been going on for a long time. Last question. Resty T at RestyTon86. Question is, I know Deutsch describes his ideas as footnotes to Popper, but didn't he make some improvements like good explanations are hard to vary? Or was that something Popper expressed too? Um, that's definitely a David Deutsch creation, discovery. Um, this idea that good explanations are hard to vary. Good explanations, explanation is central to Popper's philosophy, absolutely. It's actually central to the fabric of reality as well, but it's one thing that I kind of missed to some extent, you know, I didn't, I didn't realise, you know, in the work of Popper and the early, earlier work of David Deutsch that explanation is there as being key. And the reason why it became sort of more prominent after the beginning of Finney is because David actually explained what a good explanation was because people had been asking him, what is a good explanation? You know, can you define it? And so once, once we had this more refined understanding of what a good explanation is, then we could say, you know, here's what a good explanation is. And this is why, this is what we're seeking in all these domains, science, philosophy, morality, everywhere. We're seeking good explanations. That's how progress happens. They're the ideas that transform the world, as the subtitle uh, says to the beginning of infinity. So um, on the one hand, uh, yes, Popper talked about science as an explanation-seeking exercise. The critics of Popper rarely admit this, right? They think that Popper is just about falsification. Uh, people who claim to be Popper scholars, people who uh, are critics of, of Popper, seem to say, focus on this falsification. Falsification is just the very useful criterion which solved a particular problem of how do you separate, how do you distinguish between science and stuff that's not science? The stuff that's not science can still be very important. Morality, absolutely crucial. Philosophy, mathematics, these are all non-science. doesn't make them unimportant. And Popper certainly didn't think that. He just said, well, look, you're all focused on trying to figure out how to verify as true or to be confident in scientific theories. What I'm telling you is that's not important. Uh, the imp- the central, centrally important thing is can you test this thing? Then it's a scientific theory. Okay? Well, not, not entirely. Okay? It's, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for being a scientific theory. Okay, so let's get on to the idea. David describes his ideas as footnotes to Popper. Did he make improvements? He did make improvements. Yeah, absolutely, he's made improvements. David is a very modest person, I would say, um, and I think that's a, that's a great virtue. Some might not think it's a great virtue, 
And I happen too. People, uh, I don't think in general, people don't need to tout their own abilities and discoveries. Not in general, anyway. In fact, it can be a good method, actually, it can be a good method of error correction to say, perhaps quite honestly, look, this is not my original work, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, and so on and so forth. If you're wrong about that, others will see it. They will find out and your legacy will last in spite of your modesty and will be a more robust legacy, actually, because you will stand tall in the annals of history because, you know, you kept saying throughout your life, oh, you know, I'm just doing my best, but it's just an incremental improvement on what's gone before. Rather than going out there and saying, hey, I'm the next Einstein. (laughs) If you talk yourself down when everyone around you is talking you up, well, you're all the larger for it, I would say. And your work tends to get noticed even more. I think that's the main thing. You brag and people will notice that immediately. If you don't talk about yourself, but instead focus on your work, people will notice that too. And you will achieve what it is you really want to achieve, or at least what you should actually want to achieve, which is namely for your ideas to be tested and solve problems and improve the world, to improve the whole place. That's what you wanted. You didn't want the credit necessarily. You didn't want the fame, the fortune. You want to improve the world. The other stuff will come when the, the world gets improved. I think that's the attitude to have. So... You, so um, is, is David just footnotes on Popper? No, but he says he is. Is he being dishonest? No, I don't think he's being dishonest. But I think it's a virtue, even though the rest of us can disagree. The rest of us can absolutely disagree and say that David's wrong about that. <laughs> People sometimes ask me, you know, what, do you, what do you disagree with David Deutsch about? Perhaps that, okay? Yeah, David says he's just footnotes to Popper. Um, I don't think he is. Yeah. There's not much I disagree with David on, although... I think David prefers tea bags. You know, if he has a cup of tea, he'll have a, a tea bag of a certain kind. I prefer the leaves, not the tea bags. Yeah, tea, ba- tea bag is the poorer cousin of the, the, the loose leaf tea, I, I would say. So there's a disagreement with David Deutsch. But um, no, uh, yeah, so he's not, he, he will say, in many interviews, I think he said by now, footnotes to Popper, but yeah, objective improvements on Popper. Um, and, and, and has made a significant difference in spreading what is called critical rationalism or a version of critical rationalism. I would just say actual epistemology, um, further than anyone I'm aware of, certainly anyone alive today, he's spread epistemology further, actual ways of thinking that are, that are more correct than all those other people out there promoting ways of thinking, ways of critically thinking, ways of being so-called rational and avoiding errors, okay? Because David will say, you know, people are error-prone. It's just part of being a person, okay? A natural state of things is being error. So, so David's modesty is not false modesty. Uh, he, 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 I think he honestly believes that it's footnotes to Popper, He's being modest. I think he's wrong. <laughs> he's more than that. But it's a re- there's a reason for being modest. I think there's a virtue in this because it just means that the, 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 the work and the ideas stand for themselves. So 
we, we wouldn't we wouldn't want I don't think it would do as well if he was out there sort of saying basically you know I'm Popper 2.0 I'm the intellectual inheritor of Popper's legacy and taking it further, all that sort of stuff. Or I'm better than Popper, something like that. He never would, of course, and he, he shouldn't. And I I personally shouldn't say that of David, that, you know, he's Popper 2.0 because of what I do in promoting the work. But others absolutely can make their own judgments about this. Ultimately, history will tell, I think, and history's already begun to tell that story. So... Yeah, footnotes to Popper. Well, if that's the case, you know, we, we, you know, people like to say, you know, every other philosopher is footnotes to Plato, don't they? Clearly not true. I mean, Popper is not a footnote to Plato. He's an objective improvement on <laughs> on Plato, correcting a lot of Plato's errors. But but you know, Popper may very well not have existed if not for Plato. Yeah, someone had to make those those first steps. It's all a woven web of guesses and, you know, all these theories are misconceptions in one way, shape or form. Uh, we're moving from misconception to better misconception. And the best misconceptions that are out there right now, the most accurate ones, the ones that will allow you to make the most rapid progress, are the ones articulated by uh, and in the work of David Deutsch. I think that's a lovely way to end it <laughs> for now. Um, so that's the Ask Me Anything episode. Um, if you'd like to donate, um, please feel free to look me up on Google, uh, Patreon, uh, Topcast, uh, and feel free to contribute. I've got a PayPal donation button as well. I think you can donate via Twitter now. I think there's also a on my YouTube channel, there's like a super thanks or something or other, which um, uh, I... I've never seen used. Um, I don't know exactly how to use it. Maybe if you press the button and money gets sent to me. I don't know. Um, but until next time, bye-bye.